You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Before we launch in, I was just thinking uh, earlier today, actually I was thinking at midnight last night when I was driving home, I spent some time with some guys here from church last night, and it was actually quite nice to think about because it's been about eight months. We're entering month eight. I've counted. I know I said we've been, we were at the six-month point for when we were at like the four-month point, so I can't really count, but we're entering month eight, and I just stopped to reflect on that midnight drive home down the Eastern Freeway, and I thought, isn't it amazing? There are people here who didn't know each other more than six to seven months ago, and yet now we can't imagine life without each other. I can't imagine my life without some of you. And it's just amazing. You know, it wasn't all that long ago that 25 of us decided to launch Cross and Crown with a vision to see every tribe worship Christ as King. And if you look around, this is no, this is no point of boasting, but if you look around, our small team of 25 has, in God's kindness, grown to a church family of about 90 to 100 each week. You know, it's been, it's been an exciting journey. We've seen people come to faith, return to Christ, and grow in their knowledge and love of God. You see, by God's grace and in His kindness, it at least looks on the outside that we're, you know, one step closer towards participating in that grand vision of worldwide worship. But let's face it, right? Size also has its challenges. It can be hard each and every week to walk in here and not quite sure, not be, be not quite sure who exactly am I going to see? Who exactly am I going to talk to? You know, there's always a new come here to speak with. We're not always quite sure who belongs to this family. Please wear your name tags. It's a great way of us loving and serving you. If you're a newcomer, you might come in and just think, oh my gosh, everyone here already knows each other. But as I said, many of us only met about six months ago. You might come from a smaller church and this might seem quite large. Or you might come from a mega church and this might seem quite small. But love it or love it, for all of its strengths and weaknesses, size matters. It, it affects how we relate to one another, how we do life together, and how we serve God's mission in the world. And here's our question for today. As we grow as a church, both in number and, Lord willing, in maturity, what message might King Jesus have for us today? What word might he have for a young and fledgling, a growing church like ours? Well, in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, our passage for today, the Lord Jesus Christ wants to give us a caution and a call. A caution and a call. Firstly, the caution. Beware the large crowd. Beware the large crowd. Look with me at verses 7 to 8. And Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee. And a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. You see, last week we saw the climax of Jesus' conflict with the religious authorities. Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath, he had broke the Pharisees' man-made laws, and so, in chapter 3, verse 6, last week we ended with this. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him. 
how they might kill him. So, driven out of Capernaum, Jesus and his disciples now depart to the sea, presumably the Sea of Galilee. And I want you to notice what happens in verse 7. The crowds come to Jesus. The crowds come to Jesus. These crowds are big. See, not once nor twice, but in our translation, three times we find Mark emphasizing that this crowd is large. See, if we thought that John the Baptist had a cult following in Judea, no, it's nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only is this crowd large, it is from anywhere and everywhere. They are people traveling all the way from places like Idumea and Tyre. Now, Tyre was a coastal town about 80 kilometers north of where they were. And people were walking all that way just to see Jesus. It's the equivalent of walking from here in Glen Waverley down to Sorrento, which would take, according to Google Maps, 17 hours non-stop. Idumea was even further. It was 193 kilometers away, and it would take you 41 hours non-stop walking to get there. It's like walking from here to Wilson's Prom non-stop. It's not a great idea, especially not in this weather. You see, friends, I wonder if you can see what's happening here. Jesus' fame has spread, his popularity has grown, and people are flocking to him from anywhere and everywhere. Back in chapter 1, we had the 15,000 screaming black pink fans from all across the city. But here in chapter 3, we have 50,000 NBA fans from flying in from all across the country. There are so many people flocking to see Jesus that here in verse 9, he has to get on a small boat and call security so that the crowds wouldn't crush him. I mean, let's face it, on the outside, Jesus' ministry is going gangbusters. I mean, just imagine what James would be saying to his brother John. Bro, dude, we we made the right decision. It was so worth leaving our home for this. Just look at how many people are here. If numbers are any indication, Jesus' ministry is a raging success. But the caution, beware the large crowd. Because notice their motivation in verse 8. The large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Not saying, not preaching, but doing. And verse 10, since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing toward him to touch him. You see that the crowds may have grown in number, but they have not grown in maturity. They're exactly like they were back in chapter 1. Totally unchanged. Totally unmoved still seeking the gift over the giver, pursuing the miracle, not the message, following a magician, not the Messiah. Just like before, the crowds failed to see their deepest need. They failed to see their sin. And when you don't see your problem, you can't possibly see your solution. They fail to see that Jesus is God's Savior King. And there's the great irony, right? But for in this story, who is it that actually recognizes King Jesus? Who is it that actually says, you are the Son of God? It's the unclean spirits, right? I mean, just like before, Jesus commands them to be silent. For if his identity is revealed too quickly and too widely, the people will revolt, the Roman Empire will step in and crush the rebellion and end Jesus' mission. 
the time was not yet right. See, here's the painful irony of this scene. Those who follow Jesus don't see him for who he is. And those who see him for who he is don't follow him. But looking in from the outside, seeing the size of the large crowd and the distances from which they've traveled, you'd never guess it, would you? On the outside, Jesus is enjoying rock star success, but in reality, the large crowd are mere fans, not true followers. Our caution, beware the large crowd. Can I tell you, it is remarkably hard to grow a church. It is remarkably easy to gather a crowd. If you want to gather a crowd, just give them what they want. Game consoles, designer jewelry, motivational speaking, an emotional high. Promise them that God will fulfill their every material desire. If you follow Jesus, he'll give you a job, a pay rise, a promotion, a relationship. If you want to gather a crowd, just give them what they want. But if you want to grow a church, give them what they need. The good news of God. The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. You see, friends, do not confuse the crowd for the church. They are not the same. That the crowd are mere fans of Jesus, but the church are true followers of Jesus. I hate to say it, but it can be really easy for some of us to look around our church and go, you know what? We made it. We made the right decision. It was so worth planting this church. Just look at how many people are here. But a caution. How many of us in this place are the church or the crowd? How many people joining Cross and Crown are new believers coming to faith or non-Christians considering Jesus? How many people are returning home after years away from the Lord? How many people are intentionally and purposefully here each and every week to grow in their knowledge of God's Word and love of His Son? How many of us here genuinely come to worship the King? Or how many of us are here not for who Jesus is, but simply what He can give? We're here to hang out with our friends, appease our boyfriend or girlfriend, find a comfortable community of nice guys and nice girls, or simply have a new church experience. You see, the great risk for our church is that we look around and see growth and we assume that all is well. And I, I really hope it is, like I really do. And I, I thank God every day because I can see signs of good gospel fruit in our family. But don't be deceived by the crowd. Don't lose sight of the mission. Don't confuse the crowd for the church. What word does King Jesus want to give us today? A caution. Beware the large crowd. Secondly, a call. A call. Be with Jesus and be sent by Jesus. Be with Jesus and be sent by Jesus. You know, when you start a new church... The church planting guys come to you and say, Adam, you need to think about a church name and you need to think about a vision and mission and values and all these things. We settled on every tribe worshipping Christ as King. It's a great vision, but in many ways, this would have done perfectly fine. To be with Jesus and to be sent by Jesus. That defines our identity and our mission. Let's read verses 13 to 15. Uh, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted and they came to him. 
he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. See, if you were an Israelite in the first century, you would read this passage, right? And you would immediately think of Mount Sinai. You would remember that moment so many generations ago when Moses ascended the mountain of the Lord to receive the Ten Commandments and form the people of God. God formed His people by bringing together the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, collectively, these twelve tribes were God's ancient people. And if you were an Israelite, they were your people too. In the golden age of your prosperity, at the height of your success, all these 12 tribes stood united under God. It was great. But we sinners have a remarkable way of really stuffing things up, don't we? Israel rebelled against their God. And so in 922 BC, this kingdom united under God splits in two. Ten tribes go to the north and two tribes down to the south. And over the next 200 years, the northern kingdom is wiped out by Assyria. And not long after, the two remaining tribes are cast into exile. This kingdom, once mighty, once strong, 12 tribes united under God, is now reduced to a rubble, a shadow of their former glory. But now, Along comes King Jesus. And what does he do? Verse 14 says he appointed 12. 12 men who would take the place of those 12 tribes. 12 men who would be the beginning of a new people, a new Israel. 12 men who would form the foundation of the church, the body of Christ, the family of God. Isn't it amazing? I'm just thinking about this for a moment, right? Isn't it amazing that the king of the world cares for his people. He's not a distant king who sits in an empty castle, no, but a king who shares his rule with his people. I mean, I just want you to visualize, just picture this image of heaven. God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Jesus wants his kingdom filled with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. He wants his kingdom filled with people just like you and just like me. And he's calling us to join his people and to enter his kingdom. I want you to notice as well, Jesus doesn't just invite them. Look at verse 13, right? He summons them as a king. The prerogative... The authority, the initiative, all lie with King Jesus. You know, it can be too easy sometimes to think that the gospel is an offer of salvation, and that somehow we're doing Jesus a favor by accepting that offer. But you know, if the gospel is merely an offer, there's nothing actually wrong with me rejecting it, is there? Thanks, but no thanks. I'll be fine. But the gospel is not an offer. It's a call. It's a summons a royal decree. And to reject the gospel is not simply a lifestyle choice. No, it's to disobey the king. So reject, ignore, spurn his call, but do it at your own risk. Your king is calling. Be with me 
and be sent by me. I want you to look at verse 14, right? What does he say? He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles to what? To be with him. To be with him. What does it mean to be with Jesus? If I say I'm with Arden, I'm saying far more than just I'm physically next to him. I mean, I mean that I know Arden and he knows me. I'm his friend, I hope, and I have a close relationship with him, all of which I hope is true. See, if the crowds are merely near Jesus, no, the apostles are truly with Jesus. They lived with him, followed him, ate with him, they observed his life. They were in close fellowship with him, chosen by him, known by him, and loved by him. At heart, that's what it means to be a Christian, to be with Jesus. Firstly, to be in right relationship with him, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And then from there, to be with Jesus means to follow him. Later in Mark's gospel, we see that being with Jesus means to follow him all the way to the cross. For on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ we live. You see, to be with Jesus means to reflect His sacrificial love. It means to be more like Him. To be more like Him. But, I don't know if you realize, before we can be like Him, we need to be with Him. And the only way we can be, we, the only way we can be like Him is to continue to be with Him. Let me explain, right? Don't think about how to be like Jesus. Don't even think about how to live for Jesus until you know that you're actually with Jesus. What we do flows out of who we are. And who we are flows out of who we're with. Let me say it one more time. What we do flows out of who we are. And who we are flows out of who we're with. As we said at church, it's hard to know who everyone here is right now. It's going to take a few weeks to months to get to know everyone. Let me introduce you to someone, right? If I'm constantly with Sam Chen over there, I'm eventually going to start being like him as well. Lord, have mercy. I'm going to start wearing RMs and Patagonia jackets. I'm going to start saying things like oof and 100% all the time. Because what we do flows out of who we are, but who we are flows out of who we're with. Christianity is not first and foremost about what you do. It's not about living a good life. Because my gosh, if you're not with Jesus, you can't be like Jesus. To try to be like Jesus without first being with Jesus is like stapling a plastic fruit onto a dead tree. I mean, there's nothing natural about that. If you've been a Christian for many years, you might think that you're saved by grace, but sanctified by works. And so your whole Christian life is trapped by these burdensome rules and regulations. And yes, on the one hand, it's true that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it is God who is working in you to both will and to work according to His good purpose. No, we're saved, we're sanctified, and we're sustained all by grace alone. If you want to be more like Jesus... You need to be more deeply with Jesus. For the deeper we are with Him, the more we will be like Him. 
It is all too easy to ask the questions, what should I do now? We all know that, right? You come to church, you've been at church for any period of time, you come to church, sermon goes about 30 minutes, you kind of tune out for the first 20, last 10, it's the application points, give me five pieces about what I need to do this week. No, it starts with our hearts. Do you love Him? Are you with Him? Jesus is calling us. Be with me. Well, if you were the king, and there's a thought, I wonder, what sort of people would you call? Surely you'd call the best of the best, the elite of society, the the editor of the law review, the dean scholar, the winner of the Supreme Court Prize. But look at who Jesus calls. Twelve ordinary men. Let's look at them, Simon and Andrew, uneducated and illiterate fishermen. In verse 17, James and John, the sons of thunder, that sounds pretty cool, right? But it's not a cool reference to being like Thor. No, it's another way of calling them hot-headed, brash, immature. Some translations call them the loud ones. Every church has one. In verse 18, two people you'd never put together. Matthew, the tax collector who betrays Israel for the Roman Empire, but also Simon the Zealot, who would readily slit the throat of any traitor like Matthew. Then we have obscure people, Bartholomew and Thaddeus. I mean, come on, confession time. How many of us even knew that they were part of the Twelve? And we even find Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Who does Jesus call? An army of misfits with nothing in common other than the call of their king. A few days ago, I thought about what I would say about this. And the easiest place to go would be, isn't it wonderful, friends, that no matter our background, no matter our education, no matter our tribe, Jesus is calling us. But then I stopped and thought, Our problem is not that we associate with these disciples. Our problem is not that we resonate with them or see ourselves in them. It's actually the opposite. We don't see ourselves in them. Let me explain. Many of us here in our church family are not social misfits or career failures. In fact, we're comfortable, affluent, and by any standard, some of us here are remarkably successful. Many of you are popular, connected, and well-loved. That's the nicest thing I'm going to say about your role, all right? And so you might look at these uneducated, unsophisticated disciples and think deep in your heart, that's not me, I have my life together. I'm not among the needy of this world. Jesus can go help someone else. But you and I are as spiritually needy as these disciples are socially needy. The only difference is that our social success masks our spiritual need. Does that make sense? If you're a young professional, be very, very careful. Don't be too quick to disassociate yourself from this motley crew. No, we saw last week that the greatest obstacle to entering Jesus' kingdom is our pride. That deluded defiance that says that I am king of my life. I don't need to be with Jesus. But you see, friends, our king is calling Be with me and be sent by me. 
Look with me at the second half of verse 14. He appointed the twelve to do what? To send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Firstly, I don't know if you've realized, but we don't have that authority to drive out demons. You might go try. I don't suspect you will succeed. Because you and I are not apostles. So we can't just draw a straight line between them then and us today. And there's very, very good reason for that. Do you remember? The miracle reveals a message, but now you and I have that message right here in the pages of Scripture. And because we have the message, we no longer need the miracle. I want you to imagine, it's as if we're running a relay race, and the apostles are the first runners off the blocks. And those starting blocks, the miracles, propel them forward as they run, and then pass on the baton of the message to you and me. And our mission now is to pass on that very same baton, that very same message to others. To preach the good news of the kingdom of God. We stand on their shoulders. We build on their foundation. That is what Jesus calls us to do. To be sent by him. To pass on the baton. To preach the gospel. I hope that you realize how life-changing this news is, right? Well, think about it, yeah? We often talk about the gospel as a message of salvation, but think about it. God could have simply saved us and then benched us while he continues his mission in the world. And if he did, our lives would be nothing more than God's waiting room, a holding bay for heaven. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't save us just to bench us. No, he saves us and then sends us out onto the field to play for him, to extend his mission in the world to not just be recipients of grace, but agents of grace as well. And that means that our lives are now filled with meaning. We have a purpose and a mission that transcends this world, to declare Jesus as King, and to bring every tribe into his kingdom. This mission should be our motivation. The gospel of grace, let me be clear, should make Christians ambitious, driven, and motivated people. Laziness and apathy have no place in the Christian life. Christians know how to live every moment to the max because our every moment is filled with significance. Let me tell you about my friend. My friend's called Andrew. Andrew has a stable job in the city. He drives a BMW. He earns a nice salary and wants to settle down in a nice suburb. If you could describe Andrew's life in one word, it would be safe. But Christians never play it safe. Because we have a mission that is worth risking everything for. There should be a grit, a determination, a, a steely resolve in every believer to direct their ambitions, their goals, their plans toward this one mission to proclaim the gospel. What do you want to do with your life? What are you ambitious for? You know, many of us plan our lives according to our ambitions, our comforts, and our careers, and then we ask the question, how might God fit into my plan? But what if? What if we were to flip it the other way around? What if we were to first commit ourselves to God's mission in the world and then ask the question, how might my career, my family, my life, my finances, my friendships fit into His grand plan? For many of us, it will look like being more intentional in our work, 
in decisions about where we live. For some, it might even mean putting a glass ceiling on the top of how much or how high we're willing to be promoted, simply so that we can actually give enough time to the Lord. But for some of you, that might even mean giving up your day job and committing your life to preach the word as a missionary, a pastor, or a church planter. You see, Christians should be ambitious because King Jesus has filled every moment of our lives with eternal significance. He has enlisted us in his mission to save the world. Size matters. And the growth of our church brings unexpected joys and unexpected challenges. Many of us love being with Jesus, and we love being with each other, don't we? And the reality is that size can make that difficult. It can be hard to feel at home, and there's always newcomers at church, and you're not quite sure who belongs. To be honest, I was talking with a friend of mine, and he said, I was asking him, how how should I be doing my job better? How can I be caring for this church better? And this is what he said to me. He said, Adam, I think you're grieving right now. I'm like, why? He says, you thought you'd go into ministry and have enough time to read the Bible with absolutely everyone at church, to get to know absolutely everyone, spend time with everyone, and you just have to grieve the fact that you can't do that. And I realized that I am in that time of grief. Because I wish I knew every single one of you far more deeply than I do now. I wish I could serve you more personally than I currently can. But God in his kindness has gathered more people than we could imagine. And our risk is that we become a church full of Andrews, right? That we become a church that plays itself, that exists for our own comfort and security, and that loses sight of our true mission. I'm grieving with you. There's a sadness in not feeling as at home at church as we might like. I don't want to encourage you after this to find someone you don't know at church. Go up and say hi. And if you ask them, if someone asks you the question, hi, my name's Adam, how long have you been at church? And they say, I've been here for six months. Extend some grace to them. Get to know them. Spend time with them. Sit with someone different at dinner. Take a chance. We're not going anywhere. This is our family. If you want to know how to best feel connected in church, be connected in the mission of God. Look out. Don't look in. And let's be a church which has an ambition to not just be with Jesus for our own comfort. No, we have an ambition to be sent by Jesus so that many others whom we love and whom Christ loves even more might enjoy being with Jesus as well. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be great? Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that you show us what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. May we not just be with you. May we be sent by you. To the glory and praise of your Son, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.